Section two of Neighbourhood A Year's Life in and About an English Village by Tickner Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one January Part two it is not difficult to understand why indoor work is at most times tolerable in cities fair weather or foul for in cities earth and sky have long been driven out of their ancient comradeship stifled by pavements and masonry the earth cannot feel the touch of the sunbeams nor the air enrich itself with the breath of the soil the old glad interchange is prevented at all points there is no lure in the sunshine no siren voice in the gale summer rain does not call you out into the open to share the joy of it with the drinking grass and leaves amidst your dead impenetrable bricks and mortar you can plod on with your scribbling or figuring without a heart stir no vine leaf will tap at your window no lily of the field taunt your industry nor song of skylark dissipate your dreams but indoor work carried on in a village deep in the green heart of some beautiful countryside is on an entirely different plane at times perhaps it becomes the hardest work in the world with one lavish hand life gives you the things most necessary for close unremitting application and with the other she ruthlessly sets all manner of obstacles in your path on such a day as now dawned crystal clear over windlecombe with the first warm wind of the year blowing new life into everything there was no stopping indoors for me i got down to my work punctually enough even a little before the wanted time but good resolutions could make no headway against such odds the south-west wind boomed merrily in the elm tops the sunbeams riddled my old house through and through out in the garden robins and thrushes had formed themselves into a grand orchestra and when the breeze lulled for a moment i could hear the larks singing far overhead as though it were a summer's day an hour of half-hearted tinkering saw my fortitude break like a mill-dam five minutes later i had shut the house-door behind me and was off up the village street gulping down deep draughts of the sweet morning air i chose the path that led to the downs mounting the steep chalky track in the arms of the gale with the misty green heights looming up before me against the blue of the winter's morning one fact was borne in upon me at every step though i must needs write winter for january was but three parts done it was no longer winter but spring a few days sunny warmth had worked what seemed like a miracle in the hedges and trees the buds were swelling birds were pairing 
young green spears of grass showed underfoot across the path clouds of midges danced in the sunshine i heard the first low love croon of a wood dove and when i stopped for breath in the lee of the hazel copse there drifted out upon me a song never yet heard on winter days the mellow voice of a blackbird calling for a mate but the more we study nature out of doors the more we come to disbelieve in winter altogether winter is in truth a myth from the moment the old year's leaves are down the earth is in vigorous preparation for the new year's life and growth nature lies by quietly enough during the cold spells but each awakening is a stronger and more joyous one while they last the long frosts seem to hold all the life of things suspended yet with every return of the southwest wind it is easy to see that this is not really so though the visible sunbeams have had no power for progress those stored in the earth have been slowly and steadily at work and when the thaw comes nature seems to take up the slack of the year in one tremendous forward pull i reached the crest of windledown and made over the springy dew-soaked grass content to go wheresoever the tearing wind should drive me the long billowing curves of the hills stretched away on all sides until they lost themselves in distant violet haze here and there flocks of sheep made a grey patch in the sunlit solitude and a low clamour of bells was in the air blent with the unending song of the larks on the coombe sides the gorse spread its darker green and near at hand i could make out its gold buds already bursting under the touch of the sunbeams the next hill before me was topped with a ring of fencing near which stood a solitary figure clear-cut against the tender blue of the north shepherding on the south downs is an hereditary family calling and old george arlett the shepherd at windlecombe farm had trained up two at least of his four sons to follow in his own tranquil steps in village life though the essence of neighbourliness is that it must be exercised impartially to one and all worthy or unworthy there are ever some about you with whom the daily traffic of genial word and deed comes more aptly than with the rest in all the years i had known the artlets there had been scarce a day when i had not encountered one or other of that sturdy clan and generally to my profit if it was not the old shepherd himself placidly trailing along in the rear of his flock with his shining crook it was young george the fifty-year-old under-shepherd his pocket bulged out with a bible or dewey the shepherd's boy or john the sporting handyman tramping off to covert with his pack of mongrels 
or quaint mr sartlet carrying her household basket to and from the shop of tom artlet the singing ploughman as he was called in the neighbouring market town i got a glimpse sometimes in the early grey of morning or more often of late afternoon as he journeyed between home and farm he ploughed his acre a day conscientiously walking the usual twelve miles in the doing of it and all the while his rich powerful voice made the hills about him echo with the songs he loved why he sang these songs and why young george's pocket always bulged would have been at once evident to you if you could have looked out of window with me any sunday morning about eight of the clock punctually at that hour the two brothers strode by in their scarlet guernseys and blue braided coats on their way to the town and there they passed a seventh day more toilsome than all the other six coming home at nightfall hoarse and weary yet plainly as happy as any men could be young george artlet stood on the hilltop leaning upon his crook the wind fluttered his coat about him and lashed his haversack to and fro he stood with his back in my direction bareheaded his grey hair streaming in the breeze it was not until i had almost come up with him that i marked his uplifted face his closed eyes his moving lips and then i stopped irresolutely ashamed of the blunder i had committed but before i could turn and retreat the dog at his side had signalled my presence the old tarpaulin sou'wester hat was returned to its place young george wheeled round and looked at me with eyes of welcome i knowed by the bark o him who twere he said in his slow deep quiet voice rouster a has a name for all o ye that there little happy shruck tis yourself and nane other when a perks up and bellers tis the poodle dog and miss sweet and when a grizzles i ain't no call to look around there be a black coat no girt ways off sure as big apples come from little uns he smiled to himself as though the memory of some recent encounter with the black coat had returned to him then he took a quick glance at the sun drinkin' time said he his sheep were all on the far hillside half a mile off perhaps feeding as sheep always do on windy days with their heads to the breeze and shouldering together in long straight lines roughly parallel as again sheep generally will in spite of the prettily ordered groups on painters canvases it is only on days of perfect calm that grazing sheep will head to all points of the compass and on the south downs such days are rare indeed george artlet put his hands to his mouth funnel-wise 
and sent the shepherd's folding call ringing on the breeze Coo-hoo-oop. Coo-hoo-oop. Come along. Coo-hoo-oop. the shrill wild notes pealed out drawing an echo from every hill far and near at once all the ewes on the distant sunny slope stopped their nibbling and looked round again the cry rang forth this time the foremost sheep moved a step or two in our direction hesitated then came slowly on a moment later the whole flock was under way pouring steadily up the hillside and filling the air with a deep clamorous song but two or three of the younger sheep had stayed behind in a little bay of grass beyond the firs break rouster looked inquiringly at his master got a consenting wave of the arm and was off with the speed of light we watched him as he raced down the hill in a wide semicircle and taking the malingerers in the rear drove them helter-skelter after the rest yelping and snapping behind them he brought the whole flock up to the dew-pond at what seemed an entirely unnecessary pace tis allus so wid dogs observed young george reflectively you can never larn em as shepherd work ought to go as slow as the sun in the sky all for hurry and bustle they be from birth time to burying get the hour by says they the day over life done and on with the next thing we turned our shoulders to the blustering wind and leant over the rail together watching the sheep drink these dew-ponds on the sussex downs are always a mystery to strangers coming for the first time into the sheep country and they are never quite bereft of their miraculous quality even among the shepherds themselves that in a land where there are neither springs nor natural pools of water man should dig hollows not in the lower sink points of the valleys where one would reasonably make such a work but on the summits of the highest hills and then confidently expect nature to fill them with water keeping them so filled year after year in and out of season no matter what call was made on their resources must appear little else than downright ineptitude to one who has never had the feasibility of the plan demonstrated under his very eyes yet the seeming wonder of the dew-pond has a very simple explanation it is nothing more than a cold spot on the earth which continually precipitates the moisture from the air passing over it and this cold spot is formed on the hilltop because there it encounters air which has not been robbed of its vapour by previous contact with the earth the best dewpan makers are the men of wiltshire as all flockmasters know the pond having been excavated to the right depth and shape is lined first with puddled clay or chalk then with a thick layer of dry straw 
finally upon this straw a further substantial coating of clay is laid and well beaten down nothing is needed then but to bring a few cartloads of water to start the pond and to set a ring fence about it to keep off heavy stock the action of the straw in its waterproof double casing is to intercept the heat radiation of the earth at that particular point so that the pond cavity and its contents remain colder than the surrounding soil how the dew pond came to be invented has often been the subject of wondering speculation no doubt there have been dew pond makers for untold centuries back but at one time however far distant a first discovery of the principle underlying the thing must have been made probably the dew pond in some form or other had its origin in those remote times when all the high-lying chalk lands of southern england were overrun by a dense population but then as now the region must have been waterless and the people living there for security's sake must nevertheless have been constrained to provide themselves with this first daily necessity of all life we read of the manner given in the wilderness and the water struck from the rock these were miracles worked as miracles ever are for children they were grown men evidently in mind and heart to whom the dew-pond was given for though the thing in essence was set to shine about their feet wherever man trod so that none could forbear seeing its adaptation to human need was left to man's own labour and thoughtful ingenuity to-day as in those far-off ages the dwarf plume thistle studs the sward of the downs each circle of thick fleshy leaves matted together and centrally depressed forming a perfect little dew-pond that retains its garnered moisture long after all other vegetation has grown dry in the heat of the mounting sun even if there were no such thing as a dew-pond on all the downs to-day and every flock must perforce be driven miles perhaps down into the valley to be watered it is inconceivable that no one of prime intelligence wandering the hills alive to the need of the thirsty thousands around him would mark the natural reservoirs of the thistles reason out the principles they embodied and straightway set brain and hand to work on the first dew-pond using perchance in earliest experiment the actual thistle leaves for the indispensable heat retarding layer i had often talked the matter over with george artlett and now we drifted into the old subject but he was never to be cajoled out of his belief in the miraculous nature of the affair him has sent the fire down to the cold altar he said his long arm going up to heaven and his voice taking on that deep vibratory chime so familiar to sunday loiterers in stavisham market-place 
he knows how to send water to faith and a dry pan ay but i ha seed it comin many's the time and the first time i load as twere high barn ricks burnin we was goin home to fold and there afore me right again the red night sky i seed a girt toplin cloud a summit as looked like smoke ahent the hill says i tis high barn ricks afire but it warn't it were just gor almighty gatherin together his dew from the far winds o heaven and pourin it into mast coal's pond one afternoon when the month was all but at its end i came home through the riverside meadows the sun had just dipped below the misty earth-line before me in the east the darkness was spreading up the sky and the larger stars already shone with something of their nightly lustre but behind me it was still day from the horizon upward and far overhead the sky was a pale luminous turquoise overflecked with cloud of fiery amber the two colours a perfect harmony of cold and heat as i trod the narrow field path facing the dusk with all that glorious enmity reconciled at my back i became aware of a mysterious sound somewhere in the chain of tree-girt meadows on ahead a missile-thrush had been singing hard by but now his clarion had ceased and this other far-away note forced me suddenly out of my musing it was not a single song but a deep continuous outpouring a medley of music like the splashing and tumbling of mountain brooks with every step forward it grew in volume at last in a belt of elm trees that bordered one of the farthest fields i came upon the cause of it and though i had many times seen vast congregations of starlings i had never before encountered so huge a company as now met my gaze the trees stretched across the entire field and every twig on every branch had its perching songster the combined effect being as though the trees had suddenly shot out a magic foliage coal-black against the deepening blue of the sky heavy and thick as leaves in june now the mountain brooks had swollen to niagara's the hubbub was literally deafening i shouted my loudest hoping to set the gargantuan host to flight but i could scarce hear my own voice for a full ten minutes i stood in that great flood-tide of melody and all the time fresh detachments of birds were continually arriving to swell the multitude and add their voices to the chorus at length i saw two birds break away from the mass and fly straight off side by side immediately the tumult ceased and there followed a sound like the long rumbling roll of thunder 
the whole concourse had taken wing together the treetops released from their weight lashing back as though struck by a floor of wind now the army swept over my head darkening the sky as it went the thunderous sound grew less and less as the flock made for the distant woods a moment more and an uncanny silence had fallen on everything then half a mile away in the misty dark i heard the rich wild voice peal out again where the starling host had taken up their quarters for the night thus it happened every evening for a week after when they passed on out of the district and i saw them no more probably no single stretch of country could support such incredible numbers for more than a few days together and they must be forever trekking onward leaving behind them a famine-stricken land and making life all the harder for our own native birds for there is little doubt that these vast hordes of starlings that sweep the countryside in winter are foreigners in the main end of section two